All right. Hail and welcome. This is A for Agrimony, coffee-stained notes on witchcraft, and I am Margot. Happy Friday. <laughs> I hope you're all feeling ready and excited for the weekend ahead, and some of you might even be preparing for a special celebration by the name of Imbolc that's coming up in a few days. The next time one of these episodes drops, it will have passed. So I wanted to carve out a little bit of time in the beginning of the episode to discuss this Wheel of the Year celebration, Imbolc. So Imbolc is the celebration of the halfway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. It is a celebration of the first signs of the coming spring and the first milk of the season, uh, particularly ewe's milk. It is traditionally celebrated on February 1st to the 2nd and based in Celtic tradition, also celebrated mostly by Wiccans and other practitioners of neo-pagan or pagan-influenced religions in modern day. So the earliest mentions of Imbolc are found in some 10th century Irish poetry in which the holiday is related to ewe's milk with the implication of purification. It's been speculated that that stems from a breeding cycle of sheep and the beginning of lactation this time of year. Um, one central and prominent figure in the celebration of Imbolc is the goddess Brigid. Many early festivals were carried out in honor of the pagan goddess who was evoked in fertility blessings and oversaw poetry, crafts, and prophecy, among other things. Brigid was worshipped by the Felid, a class of poets and historians among the Celts of ancient Ireland and Britain. She was also considered one of the most powerful Celtic gods, the daughter of the Dagda, the oldest god in the Celtic pantheon, Tuatha de Danann. She had two sisters also named Brigid, though it's speculated that these sisters are meant to symbolize different aspects of the same goddess. In pre-Christian times, the Imbolc observation began the night before February 1st, when celebrants prepared a visit from Brigid by crafting an effigy of the goddess from bundles of oats and rushes. When they were finished, the effigy was placed in a dress and put in a basket overnight. The following day would see rituals including burning lamps and lighting bonfires in tribute to Brigid. Now, uh, I myself do not work with the goddess Brigid, and I am also not a Wiccan, although some of my craft is influenced by my early ascension into the world of witchcraft and paganism, uh, which was heavily influenced by solitary Wiccan teachings, and my first several years practicing the craft did include the observations and celebrations of the Wheel of the Year. I have since kept up with these celebrations as a way of marking and honoring the seasonal changes that occur throughout the year, and the lore of the goddess and the goddess still really fascinates me. So what I typically do is after the winter solstice and the holidays are over with, uh, I tend to leave my winter decorations up through the month of January. They're just, I just love them. And I leave them up through January for that reason. And then just before Imbolc, I take them down. And that is when I really turn my focus from the celebration of winter and the rebirth of the sun to the coming spring. On the traditionally timed evening of Imbolc, I cook a feast of seasonal foods, um, which is not a very large selection where I live this time of year. But that only really adds to the sense of gratitude for not only what is in season, but the fact that many different foods are still attainable, regardless of the winter. 
but this is not the case for everyone on a planet whose gifts are abundant yet poorly managed. So this is why a typical component of my seasonal celebrations is a donation to local organizations who are working to provide relief for food insecurity. Uh, Let's see. I also incorporate a lot of cheeses and dairy into the feast. And one of my favorite items is actually a baked blackberry crumble uh, or a blackberry cobbler actually with homemade whipped cream, a recipe that I will be sharing on the Patreon complete with some historic background and lore surrounding the ingredients that go into it. And as a nod to the tradition of coaxing the sun to continue to grow stronger and the days to grow longer and warmer, I will light several candles throughout my home. Beyond this, I typically don't really perform any ritual for this particular celebration, but sometimes the act of cooking a meal, lighting candles, and practicing gratitude feels like a ritual in and of itself. But for those of you who want to try to get more in touch with the energies of Imbolc, even though you don't particularly celebrate the Celtic tradition of it, you could focus on basically what it stands for in the time of the year that it takes place and the upcoming season of spring. Because in most places, especially where I live, for example, in South Jersey, there's barely a sign of spring, but I know it's coming. So if we were to look at spring like a seedling, uh, we could compare in bulk to a seed. And I have Llewellyn Sabbath Essentials, in bulk rituals, recipes, and lore for Bridget's Day. And I wanted to read a section of this book that actually emphasizes on how we can look at the seed and even plant a seed physically or in our imagination to really help us get in touch with the energy of this time of year. So plant a seed. Although Imbolc falls before outdoor planting is safe in many parts of the world, in the modern era, we can plant seeds at Imbolc regardless of the temperature outdoors. The seed is both a literal and symbolic representation of Imbolc. Literally, the seed represents the beginning of work and the life and the nourishment that will result from it. Food is the difference between life and death for all of us. However, the seed also serves as a symbolic representation of Imbolc because it represents potential. Much like an unhatched egg, often associated with the next Sabbath, Ostara, the unplanted, unsprouted seed can hold many things. While you can look at a seed and often know which species of plant produced it, it's still difficult to tell exactly what you will get if you plant that seed. The seed might sprout and grow into a large, healthy plant, but it could also be weak and barely grow no matter how much care or nurturing you provide. Sometimes a seed doesn't even sprout the kind of plant you expect. You can't tell by looking at a tomato seed if it will be large, hardy tomatoes or if it will produce a bushel of cherry tomatoes. Many species of melons produce seeds that are virtually undistinguishable to those of us without a degree in botany. You might think you are planting zucchini but actually have pumpkin seeds. And some seeds never sprout at all. When you look at that humble seed, think about how much potential is there. Our day-to-day lives are filled with seeds too. Every project you start, from opening a new business to volunteering at a local festival, is like planting a seed. When you look at a new project, you think you know what it is and what the result will be. But once you plant it, however, it will grow as nature wishes, and you may end up with something quite different from what you first imagined. Some of the things that grow from these seeds are like annual plants. You do the project once, and as soon as it is concluded, you never try that project again. Some of your projects might be self-seeding, so when one project has been completed, it immediately plants the seeds for another to replace it, such as working on an annual fundraiser from year to year. 
the most important seeds we plant are those with love. You can manifest this meditation by actually planting seeds, even in the coldest climates. Your local food store or home store is likely to sell not only seeds, but trays, pots, and soil that will allow you to plant indoors, even when there is a thick blanket of snow on the ground. If you're a gardener, in bulk is often a great time to start seedlings indoors to later transplant into your garden when warmer weather arrives. In some climates, the soil is warm enough that you can actually plant seeds directly into the ground at in bulk. Whether you plant actual seeds or merely plant seeds in your imagination, the ideas that go along with the seed physically and symbolically are worthy of study and meditation. So I really like the idea of planting a seed, even if you're not physically planting a new plant, planting the seeds for the things that are coming in the year to come or in the months to come, um, the things that the, the projects that we want to start and grow. And that is really a great way to connect to the energy of this time of year and the celebration of Imbolc. Compared to other Wheel of the Year celebrations go, um, this is one that to me feels more about intuitively feeling the changes in the outside world and mentally preparing for spring than any outward or elaborate celebration. It's nice. I like it. And I'd love to hear from you about how you choose to celebrate, any recipes that you cook, any spell work that you do, rituals. I'd love to know about it and I'd love to see about it. Hit me up on socials. And speaking of intuition, we are discussing the embodiment of intuition herself today, and that is the high priestess, as well as the pomegranate, but we'll get to that. So the high priestess is card number two in the major arcana. She represents the subconscious, the power of true intuition, sacred knowledge and wisdom, the mysteries, feminine energies, reflection, understanding the divine, insight, and balance. So in numerology, the number two is a cooperative number, always bringing balance and equality and peace to situations and relationships. It is a highly sensitive and powerfully intuitive number that is pervaded with feminine energies, gracious and powerful. To put it simply, Two represents partnerships and the coming together or the balancing of two individual parts. These can be people, ideas, or physical objects. The result is not control and authority, however, but harmony or a middle path between two extremes. Now, the high priestess very adeptly embodies this energy. So let's talk about the typical depiction of the High Priestess as she is shown in most Rider-Waite-Smith-influenced tarot decks. The High Priestess is shown sitting in a relaxed yet composed position between two pillars. One is black with a B etched on it, and one is white with a J. These pillars are Boaz and Yaquin of the Mystic Temple. These pillars represent the opposites, severity and mercy, masculine and feminine, passive and aggressive, dark and light. The priestess's position in between them denotes her ability to maintain balance between these extremes and highlights her role as the mediator, equalizer, and also the middle road that stays the course in between them, but also unites them. In the most common depictions of the high priestess, she sits in front of a curtain or a veil that is decorated with a pattern of pomegranates. 
the mystical fruit symbolizes many things, and among them are fertility, rebirth, and Persephone's journal. <laughs> Persephone's journal. We have her diary, everybody. We're going to read it. I'm sorry. Persephone's journey through the underworld in Greek mythology. Likewise, there is often a crescent moon at her feet, bringing to light her connection to the subconscious and powerful intuition. The crown upon her head resembles a moon with two horns on either side, and this draws an association with ancient goddess worship, and also sometimes is associated with the phases of life, death, and rebirth. In many cases, a cross can be spotted over her blue robes, the color blue representing intuitive emotions, and the cross indicating her knowledge of and close relationship with the divine. And she is also frequently shown holding a scroll with the word Torah written on it. This refers to the word of God, as was revealed to Moses, detailed in the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. You might also notice that the word Torah is often partially hidden, which implies that not all things need to be spoken. Some things are simply implied. So, all of this powerfully potent symbolism points to the clear conclusion that this figure is the guardian and the custodian of the sacred, the subconscious, the hidden mysteries of the unknown, a gatekeeper to the realm of dreams, as well as earthly wisdom. She is the picture of levity, ease, and balance between the forces of light and shadow, and she is a self-possessed teacher for the fool to learn from in these mysteries. He has learned from the magician so far to use the tools at his disposal to create the physical reality that he desires in the conscious world. Now the high priestess is poised to teach him to look inward, to listen to his inner voice, to sit in quiet meditation and find his own balance, to feel rather than think. If the magician educated the fool on the principles of the physical, the high priestess now offers an education on the spiritual. In A.E. Waite's 1911 book, The Pictorial Key of the Tarot, he describes the high priestess at length, but to borrow just a few sentences. She has been called occult science on the threshold of the sanctuary of Isis, but she is really the secret church, the house which is of God and man. She is, in fine, the queen of the borrowed light, but this is the light of all. She is the moon nourished by the milk of the supernal mother. In a manner, she is also the supernal mother herself. That is to say, she is the bright reflection. There are some respects in which this card is the highest and holiest in the greater arcana. So, where astrology is concerned, the high priestess corresponds to the energies of the moon. I immediately thought of that when reading the pictorial key to the tarot's description, as is mentioned that she is the bright reflection. So the moon, this luminary is the celestial body of reflection and response. It is associated with motherly and feminine energy in many schools of thought and represents our unconscious, our emotions, the way we love, our innermost needs, and often concealed reactions and emotional responses. And because of this secretive nature, our fears and insecurities also live here. So if we were to see the qualities of the high priestess in a human being that we encounter out in the world, this individual could be a motherly figure who serenely listens to your problems without judgment and without ever breaking your confidence. 
This person is a keeper of secrets, not in a calculated way, but in a way that fully embraces you and never seeks to share that which is sacred, including their own secrets, which they keep guarded. Oversharing is unfathomable where this person is concerned. This person is extremely wise and is able to exude such wisdom without proving it with mere words. For all these reasons, they may seem a little bit aloof and less than intimate, but this is because they are much more deeply connected to their spirituality, their inner world, or their higher self than many people and or the mundane world at large. This person also trusts their intuition completely, seeming to know things but hardly ever bothering to explain how. (laughs) Keep in mind that although this description may seem to paint the picture of someone that is distant and unattached, this person is actually extremely empathetic and kind. It would be out of place for them to behave otherwise because wisdom often dictates compassion. So you may know someone like this. However, This picture can very easily be painted in a way that denotes an aspect of the self. In fact, when I read tarot, I most often attribute the qualities of these archetypes to an aspect of myself that needs to be tapped into in order to more easily navigate a certain situation or a predicament, or an important lesson that I will need to learn in order to allow me to see the bigger picture or a way through. Many times, it simply points to how the answers that I seek may be present but less obvious because they reside in the deeper known places like my dreams, my intuition, or my subconscious. Those places positioned somewhere between my own conscious mind and the wisdom of the divine. To go inward is to enter the mystic temple and the high priestess holds sacred space for you as you do so. As the gatekeeper, she doesn't block the way, but beckons and watches over you as you pass through the veil and tread towards your own well of mysterious wisdom. So what does all this mean when you pull the high priestess in a reading? How is the fool being guided further along their hero's journey? I have this great book. Author Noel Eastwood weaves the fool's journey into a narrative titled The Fool's Journey Through the Tarot major arcana. It follows the main character named Fallen on his journey through the major arcana, and it speaks to the fool in all of us as we make our way through life, growing in maturity, wisdom, and ultimately self-acceptance. In it, our fool, Fallen, encounters each of the tarot archetypes as characters in his epic hero's journey, and each of the card's meanings as well as their archetypal energies are revealed as he does so. The Fool's Journey through the Pentacles, Cups, Wands, and Swords are also available, but if you're interested in the series, I recommend starting with the Major Arcana, as Fallen, our hero does. Anyway, the book also provides a way of remembering the meanings and the symbolism of the cards in the Major Arcana by hearkening back to the hero or Fool's Journey and using his story to help us recall the important key points. Eastwood's book employs storytelling to each of the lessons of the Major Arcana, but a more brief telling of the encounter with the High Priestess would be that as the fool approaches the High Priestess, she bids him pause, and she instructs the fool, you have learned to trust in the universe and take a leap of faith needed to start your journey towards enlightenment. You have learned to trust in your ability to create your physical desires Now is the time for you to learn to trust in your inner knowing, your intuition, your dreams, 
and your gifts of divine wisdom. So when the high priestess card appears, you're being reminded that this is a time to let go of rationality and quiet your conscious mind because your inner wisdom is what's needed right now. You may need to spend some time in quiet and solitude, pay closer attention to your dreams or to the synchronicities that could be occurring all around you. And she tells us that it's time to tune into your own rhythms because the answers that we seek are within us. The high priestess does not fear the dark and encourages us to trust in our own ability to navigate the unknown. When she reveals herself to us, she may be calling us toward practicing some shadow work, uncovering a hidden truth, or embarking on a spiritual journey. Listen carefully to your inner voice, for that guiding voice is nothing more and nothing less than the embodiment of divine intuition. What's being suggested is that you access your intuition for the answer that you seek, or that you need to maybe start developing your skill of tapping in. Depending upon your situation, you may be guided to guard your secrets, or this may be a hint that something is being hidden from you and may take some time to unfold. Ultimately, it is an auspicious card, however, so you can rest assured that although some introspection and revelation is needed, a desirable outcome is likely. So take the High Priestess card as an invitation to work on creative pursuits, connect your unconscious through meditation, participate in activities that nurture your spirituality, or work on establishing more balance, daring to navigate your own darkness from time to time. Because, to quote American professor Brene Brown, only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. And that's a lesson that the goddess Persephone learned in the Greek myth that involved a kidnapping, a distraught mother, and a peculiar fruit named a pomegranate. The myth of Persephone is a very popular one from ancient times, and it is said that her story was represented in the Eleusinian Mysteries, the great and private and secret celebrations of ancient Greece. So to sum it up as quickly as possible, but still giving it, you know, the attention it deserves. According to Greek mythology, Persephone, the queen of the underworld, was the daughter of Zeus and Demeter, the goddess of harvest and fertility. She was also called Kor, which means maiden, and grew up to be a lovely girl, attracting the attention of many gods. However, Demeter had an overprotective love of her daughter, and as such, kept all men away from her. The most prominent suitor of Persephone was Hades, the god of the underworld. He was the shadowy brother of Zeus, who presided over the land of the dead. But his heart softened when he saw Persephone and was enraptured by her luminous and youthful beauty. It is said that Hades approached his brother Zeus about his desire to take Persephone as his wife, and Zeus, as her father, permitted it. So one day, while the young woman was out picking flowers in a valley, the earth beneath her suddenly cleaved open, and through the gap, Hades himself came out and grabbed the lovely maiden before she could scream for help, and they both descended into his underworld kingdom while the gap in the earth closed after them. No one in or near the valley had seen the kidnapping, as it all happened very quickly. However, the incident had been witnessed by the sun god Helios, who saw all things during the day. As time passed, a distraught and heartbroken Demeter wandered the earth looking for her daughter, until a fellow goddess by the name of Hecate, goddess of wilderness and childbirth, 
who was known to be the protector of women and children, advised her to question Helios, the all-seeing sun god, on the matter. Helios, feeling sympathy for Demeter, revealed to her that Persephone had been kidnapped by Hades. When she heard this, Demeter was enraged, and in her fury, grief, and disappointment, decided to take a long and indefinite leave from her duties as the goddess of the harvest and fertility, with devastating consequences. The earth began to dry up, harvests failed, plants lost their fruitfulness, animals were dying for lack of food and famine spread through the whole earth, resulting in untold misery. When the cries of the people who were suffering reached Olympus and the divine ears of Zeus, the mighty god finally realized that this wouldn't do, and that if he didn't do something about Demeter's wrath, all humanity would despair. Thus, he decided that Persephone must be returned to the land of the living to appease Demeter and undo this devastation. But there was one problem, however, because Hades, through what many sources claim to be trickery, fed pomegranate seeds to Persephone during her stay in the underworld. Six, to be exact. The fruit was not only the food of the underworld, but a powerful symbol of marriage, and so it now tethered her to both the underworld and Hades himself. Now, the only solution possible was for Persephone to remain in the underworld for the same number of months as eaten seeds. Six, so half of the year. And then she could return to her mother in the upper world for the remaining six months. Thus, the lovely maiden became the rightful wife of Hades and the queen of the underworld, spending just half of the year with him and the other half with her mother, who grieved in her absence, bringing about the decline of nature in autumn and the restful and inert months of winter. When Persephone returned, Demeter's spirits would be lifted, and her happiness would bring about the spring and summer, and the eternal cycle of life, death, and rebirth was begun. So the story is one that many of us have heard more than once, and many of us have even ventured to interpret a bit differently. That rather than sealing Persephone's doom, Eating the pomegranate seeds allowed her to gain so much knowledge that the underworld was no longer seen as a scary place, but as a provider of balance. That seems consistent with the High Priestess card, where we first spot a pomegranate in the tarot, on the curtain that conceals the cosmic mysteries that the priestess guards, as she is the figure who brings balance between light and dark, consciousness and dreams, among other dualities. In fact, most references will point to the fruit's association with both fertility, evocative of Demeter, and the underworld, evocative of Persephone as the queen of the underworld. These two things definitely stand in opposition of one another, but one such as the high priestess would easily strike a balance between them. Perhaps in this story, the high priestess is Hecate who in the light of day helps Demeter by taking her to question Helios, the embodiment of the sun, about Persephone's whereabouts, but also traverses the underworld and there becomes a companion to Persephone as she takes up her mantle as queen, as is explained in later tales. In the original myth of Persephone, Hecate is referred to as the goddess of wilderness and childbirth, but many of us know her today as the goddess of witchcraft, the underworld, and the crossroads. Beyond this, some of you may even know of her other epithet, Hecate Sotira, the savior and the cosmic world soul. Talk about striking a balance between extremes. But as we focus back on the pomegranate, especially in the symbolism of the tarot, we need to mention another card where it appears, 
and that is the Empress card, the absolute embodiment of fertility. Indeed, within the confines of the tarot alone, the pomegranate is a reference to fertility and feminine energy. The red fruit, rich with sweet seeds, is the ultimate symbol of procreation and lush, natural female beauty. Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs lists its power of divination, luck, wishes, wealth, and fertility, and even goes as far to suggest that women have long eaten the seeds to increase fertility. But we still have the pomegranate as the fruit of the underworld that was somehow magical and powerful enough to anchor Persephone to her new home in the land of the dead. And, according to Plant Magic by the Library of Esoterica, we see the pomegranate being used alongside grapes, barley, and wheat as funerary offerings for the dead in ancient Egypt. These provided the dead with a celebratory feast for the afterlife. These points further illustrate the dual nature of the mystical fruit. Upon searching for more references to the pomegranate, I came across a Jewish folktale called The Magic Pomegranate, originally collected in Penina Scram's Jewish Stories One Generation Tells Another. The Magic Pomegranate is a Jewish folktale about three brothers who decide to take individual journeys to different lands in order to find the most unusual gift. The oldest brother travels to the west, the middle brother travels to the east, and the youngest brother travels to the south and they all meet back up 10 years later with their unusual gifts, one of which is a magic pomegranate. Once together, they find out that there is a sick princess in need, and the three brothers travel together to rescue her. With their magical gifts, each brother helps the princess, but only the magic pomegranate really saves her life, as does the power of giving selflessly. The moral of the story is that those who are the most selfless reap the greatest rewards. Uh, Folktales are an ideal method of communicating important cultural, religious, and ethical values. And as Scram notes in her afterword, this tale embodies the Talmudic concept of self-sacrifice as the highest form of mitzvah, or good deed. Looking into this particular folktale led me to discover that Jewish tradition teaches that the pomegranate is a symbol of righteousness, knowledge, and wisdom, because it is said to have 613 seeds that corresponds with the 613 mitzvah, or commandments of the Torah. From here, I discovered that in some artistic depictions, the pomegranate can be found in the hand of Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, and... According to the Muslim Quran, pomegranates grow in the gardens of paradise. The Quran mentions pomegranates three times as one of the fruits that will be found in paradise, a reminder of the nutritious provision of God and as a sign of his artistry. Finally, I came to two of my favorite new pieces of information about this mystifying fruit. The first, according to edibleparadise.com and livescience.com, that some scholars believe that the pomegranate was in fact the original forbidden fruit of the Garden of Eden. In fact, the Latin name for the species, Punica granatum, literally translates to seeded apple. However, no one can be 100% certain because the Hebrew Bible only mentions fruit, not pomegranate or apple for that matter. The second piece of information is that according to maybellbarriquette.com, is that the image of the pomegranate can frequently be found decorating Torah scrolls. Remember, the scroll that the high priestess holds in her hands as she sits in front of a curtain 
decorated with the pomegranate. The figure who holds cosmic secrets, spiritual knowledge, and divine wisdom sits before a veil decorated with a fruit that I, in my amateur attempt at research, was able to find in Greek mythology, ancient Egyptian funerary rites, Jewish traditional teachings, Christian artwork, and Islamic scripture. I know I'm barely scratching at the surface. PracticalHerbalist.com says that the pomegranate's reputation extends to legends of India and China as well, but I'm going to leave it here out of respect for traditions and religious teachings that are not my own. However, I am reminded that the tarot was contrived from and inspired by many schools of thought, religious and mystical, and looking into the magic of the pomegranate has only enriched my fascination with the entire tarot system. So moving into plant magic and medicine of the pomegranate from the perspective of the modern witch, we look to the growing habits of the pomegranate for guidance. Pomegranate trees sprout many roots from a single root and crown, and their fruit is filled with hundreds of seeds. Therefore, the pomegranate's fertility magic is about diversity. It teaches us to cast our seeds, or spells, wishes, or efforts, far and wide, to send out many branches to find strength in a diverse or wide array of creative pursuits. However, pomegranate trees won't fruit if the conditions aren't ideal, although very few growers would refer to the fruit as delicate. In this way, the pomegranate reminds us to be aware of our surroundings, to choose wisely when and where we choose to sow our seeds, and to be uncompromising in the conditions we require for our own growth. In modern witchcraft, the pomegranate is a highly lucky and magical fruit, tied to the cycle of life, death, and rebirth, which encompasses all things. Always make a wish before eating one. But remember, much like the wish you make over birthday candles, keep your wish a secret and guard your secrets like the high priestess would. Perhaps then, it might just come true. Okay. So before I leave you, I have another Patreon shout out. I'm so grateful for the support that I've been receiving. I get so excited when new members of the Patreon join. Uh, and I just hope that you are enjoying being a part of this little growing community. So I want to um, give a big warm welcome and thank you. And I love you to Michelle, Alicia, and Margaret. Welcome. Thank you so much for your support. I'm so excited to have you. You guys are amazing. Uh, like I've said on previous episodes, the encouragement and the support that I've received so far is so heartwarming and amazing, and it really, really means so much. Uh, if you want to support the podcast in a different way, uh, I invite you to please leave a review wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Um, reviews really, really help little podcasts like mine, and I absolutely would appreciate it so much. And thank you so much for listening in the first place because you are supporting just by listening also. So thank you to all of you. And yeah, I guess that's all that I have for you today. Be well and have an amazing weekend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A is for Agrimony, Coffee-Stained Notes on Witchcraft. 
If you want some more content, please go to www.aisforagrimony.com where you can find my blog, episode archive, spells and rituals, and the soon-to-come coven shop. You can also follow me on Instagram at a underscore is underscore for underscore agrimony. That's an underscore in between every word. Or like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash a is for agrimony. And if you're interested in some exclusive insider bonus content, you can join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash a is for agrimony, where I share unedited video format episodes, weekly collective card readings, and much more. Want to contact me? Shoot an email to reachmargo at a is for agrimony.com. That is all. Be well and talk to you next time. of the people who were suffering reached Olympus and the divine ears of Zeus, the mighty God finally realizes, realized I'm doing great so far, guys. I'm really doing great. (laughs) Maybe this is why I usually leave recordings for the evening. Okay. When the cries of the people who were suffering reached Olympus, procreation and lush, natural female beauty, Cunningham's and coming hands, for fuck's sake. Okay. Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs lists